now since the last weekend in November. And chapter by chapter, we've followed their tale. And I wonder if you've been walking that path with us. You've been journeying with us through the Book of Ruth, where you'd expect the story to finish. At what point are you expecting the credits to roll and the end to appear on the screen? Perhaps if you thought that Ruth was supposed to be a, a tragedy, then you might have expected the credits to roll at the end of chapter one with weeping, with tears, with bitterness, because chapter one was filled with death and, and disappointment. Or if you lasted past chapter one, uh, you hung around long enough for Boaz to make his appearance. Perhaps you expected this love story to find its finish somewhere around the middle of chapter four, with the wedding of our protagonists, Ruth and Boaz, together at last. One thing I'm reasonably certain of is that none of us would be expecting the book to finish how it does. Let me read from where we left off last week, Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, that's the grandmother, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap and became a mother to him. The neighbor women said a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. I'm not sure any of us would be expecting that to be the conclusion of the story. Unless, of course, you've got some really peculiar obsession with family trees. At no point during this epic tragedy come love story, thrash, thriller, would you have been really expecting the story to finish in that way? And here's a general rule for when we're reading the scriptures. When we're reading our Bible and things happen that we aren't expecting, or when things happen that shock us, usually we're supposed to learn from them. Usually that's the very point at which something can jump out and teach us. We're used to that in the life and the ministry of Jesus, perhaps. He'd say things like this, you have heard it said, but I say. Jesus is cutting against the grain, and it's at that very point he's expecting people to learn. And yet my guess is that when most of us come across something happening that we're not expecting or we don't easily understand, rather than learning a lesson, we just ignore it. We move on. But we'd be wrong to do that. We'd be wrong to ignore this PS, this final message in the book of Ruth. Really wrong. And not simply because there's something extra that we'd be missing out on, but it's in seeing what is, what is here for us to see really helps us to understand the main teaching of the book of Ruth. 
if you're at home and you've got your Bibles open, I'm sure we've all got different types of Bibles, different translations, study Bibles, amplified Bibles, Bibles with notes in them written by us or written by other people. Let me tell you, if you went down to Amazon today and you got the Sammy Davis Bible study, you'd find a highlight on this passage with a note saying this. And here at the close of the story is the point of the whole story. The real reason we have preserved for us this romance of Ruth and Boaz. Because if it wasn't for Ruth and Boaz, we'd never have King David. Can you see where I'm coming from? It's like that it's been between the lines, but now the author wants us to have no doubt about it. This is why you need to know about Ruth and Boaz, because if it wasn't for them... If it wasn't for this mother and that father, we'd never have this child. The child being Obed, but not just that child, the child's child and the, and the grandchild of that child. Obed, Jesse, David. And we're not expecting that, but we certainly shouldn't miss it. Do you know where else in the scriptures Ruth's name is found? There's one solitary other mention of Ruth, the great-grandmother of King David. Do you know where it is? Perhaps you think it's in 1 Samuel, the story which speaks of David coming towards the throne. Perhaps you'd expect it to be in the book of Psalms, largely written by King David. But actually, it's in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel in chapter 1 and another genealogy. But this one then isn't a genealogy that ends with King David. It's one that ends with Christ. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz by Ruth, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David, and so on and so on until we arrive at this line. Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. For the people of Israel, who read the book of Ruth and arrived at this odd finish, it was a lesson to them that God had long before David's birth been preparing a way for a great king. And for the those of us who sit now and are able to read Ruth and Matthew's gospel, who can see the David at the end of the genealogy and the Jesus at the end of the genealogy, it's a lesson to us that God has long before his birth been preparing a way for the greatest king. And if you can imagine it like this, the whole scripture up until the coming of Jesus is like a long chain with many links, leading from a first promise of a coming saviour right the way through to its ultimate fulfilment. Ruth and her Boaz are one link in that chain. And no matter how small or insignificant that link seems, it's necessary for the whole chain to remain unbroken and strong. Sometimes we can arrive in the New Testament at the coming of Jesus as we celebrated yesterday for Christmas. And we can think of it like this, that God's plan A for salvation, which is found in the Old Testament, we sometimes say, and the relationship that he might have with his people through that plan A was such a failure that he had to come up with a plan B. And that the New Testament, Christmas, the coming of Christ, 
is, is some new plan, some new scheme that God has developed in order to rescue his people. It's a more involved plan, a more costly plan, one that he hadn't considered earlier if a plan A might have worked. But when we come with those sort of ideas, those sort of attitudes, we're utterly and utterly wrong, consciously or unconsciously. We think about an old way and a new way. But that's not the case at all. And, and things like this close to the book of Ruth and the opening of the New Testament itself in Matthew's Gospel show us that these aren't PSs at all. That all along God has planned and has interwoven into human history this plan. And it's been prepared and it's been unfolding before our very eyes. To help us to see that, some people sometimes go back to the Garden of Eden. Go back very near to the start, page 3 of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, and to a small corner of the curse that came in. The curse that came with a promise that God gives to this newly rebellious creation that's before him. Even Adam are about to be ejected from paradise, but before that happens, the Lord turns to the serpent and speaks these words. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust. All the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he, this offspring, this seed, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Here's how people read that and understand that. That the serpent, Satan, the father of lies, the one who offered a sinful future to Adam and to Eve, he is to be crushed. He is to be defeated by an offspring of Eve. But in doing so, that offspring themselves will be hurt, although not fatally. And so even here, before humanity has had the chance to really go off the rails, before Cain has had a chance to kill his brother, before sin has totally consumed all the, the senses and desires of mankind, here is plan A. And the plan A appears to be salvation through Jesus. The head crushing, the destruction of the serpent was, after all, achieved by Jesus on the cross, where he defeated sin and Satan and death. We know Jesus was wounded, don't we? His heel was bruised. He died on the cross, but not fatally, because he rose again to new, glorious life. So long before the law and Moses and what we often perceive as plan A, we read about the true plan A, the promise of a rescuer, Jesus, the Messiah. And yet, actually, others will take you back even further, further back than page three of the Bible, page two of the Bible. Here's how a friend of mine once put it, speaking about Eve being born out of Adam. The way Eve is created is quite incredible, he says. Remember that this is paradise. This is before sin, curse and death have entered the world. Nevertheless, to create a bride, Adam must go down into a death-like sleep. Great violence must be done to him. His side will be pierced, will be torn apart, and out from him will come another, his complement, his bride. Then he is raised up and brought together with her for a time of praise and singing and consummation. 
This is what it takes for a man to get his bride. And of course, this whole thing is a preview of Christ and his bride, the church, even before sin. The gospel is being preached to us. It is not good for the man, Jesus, to be alone. God the Father desires the very best for his son, a wife, a bride to share life with. But the creation of that bride will be costly. Christ must have violence done to him, his side pierced. He must go down into death, but will rise up again to be united with his bride and with his people. Now you might find that description incredibly romantic, a romantic assessment of the text, but I find it heartwarming to consider that the picture, this picture of Christ and his bride, the church, all those people who have been saved, who have put their trust in him, is there even before the fall. This plan A of how God was going to create a church, a rescued, a redeemed people, even before there was the peril or the need for rescue. Some people will go back to Genesis chapter 3. Some people will go back to Genesis chapter 2. I'm inclined, if I, I really want to understand plan A of salvation, to go back even further. Further even than Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. After all, these are the words of Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. For he, the Father, chose us, that is you and I and all the church, in him, Jesus Christ, before the creation of the world. Christ come to save sinners, to rescue rebels, to breathe life into dead human race. It wasn't the second attempt by God to right that which had gone very wrong. Christ come to save sinners. It wasn't a knee-jerk reaction to the temptation of the servant. Christ come to save sinners wasn't even the merely logical step in the process of creation. Christ come to save sinners is from before even the creation of the world. The chain doesn't run from chapter 3 to Gen of Genesis to Matthew 1. It doesn't run from chapter 2 of Genesis to chapter 1, but from eternity past until a point that Christ comes. Right throughout the Old Testament, this is the history we perceive. God interacting with his people. We see um, those links carefully crafted, carefully maintained, all leading from one thing to another until Christ would come. And so the book of Ruth is a lot of things. It's a place where we can learn an awful lot of lessons about providence, about love, about redemption and so on. But when we get to chapter 4, and especially this PS, especially verses 18 to 22, this otherwise seemingly strange and random and out of place genealogy, the thing that we aren't expecting to read, it should transform this book and all of the scripture for us. Because it's not just the preservation of a random history. It's not just the preservation of a, a random love story. It's the real life parable. It's the real life story 
unfolding of God's plans and promises and purposes. Have you ever noticed that before? Have you ever considered that before? Why, why does God care so much apparently for Naomi and Ruth and Boaz? Why should we care about what happens in their lives? It's because God has promised, because God has planned, because God has chosen to do what he is doing. And so from the biggest events in human history to some of the smallest, seemingly insignificant details, our Father in heaven concerns himself with achieving what he has set out to do, saving sinners, rescuing rebels through his Son, Jesus Christ. From, you Think about it, from the mighty power of God parting the waves of the Red Sea to the quiet voice that called Samuel as he lay down to sleep. From the last minute intervention to prevent genocide in the book of Esther to the man who simply wouldn't divorce his fiancée even when he found out that she was already pregnant. From the forming of the oceans and the heavens and the earth in between to the it just so happened to be that Ruth came to glean in the field of a man named Boaz. Our God is a God who cares enough to involve himself even in the minutiae, but is mighty enough to ordain even the massive. He cares enough to involve himself in the minutiae, but is mighty enough to ordain even the massive. Big to small, he is over it all for one purpose, so that Christ could be ours, that life could be ours in him. You are insignificant. I am insignificant. The Lord God Almighty, though, was at work long before we knew it, in ways we could never count or imagine to bring about our salvation. And I think that is what the book of Ruth is all about. That's why we have it. That's why we have this little post-it note tagged on at the end, so that we're in no doubt... We're in no doubt that this is more than just the story of an upright man who goes beyond the letter of the law for the love of his life. We're left in no doubt that what's unfolded before our eyes isn't just a touching love story, but it's a link in the unbroken chain of God's love for his son and God's love for his people that stretches right back into eternity and through to us today to you and to me and to everyone who would believe in Jesus and call on his name to be saved. So let me offer you very quickly two encouragements as we come to a close. Number one, nothing you face is too big for our God. There are countless examples of this in the scripture and I just want to remind you of it again today. No matter what you are facing, you do not face something which is out of God's control something that is beyond his ability and his powers and his might and his majesty and his authority to be involved in. Nothing you face is too big for our God. And to go along with that, the second thing, nothing you face is too trivial. Nothing that to you might even seem silly and insignificant. It's too minute to escape the scope 
of his involvement in our lives. In everything, big or small, we are called to trust in him. He is the God who is over all things, working all things for the good of those who love him. Just as we celebrated yesterday as a nation, Christ's coming, planned before the foundation of the world, promised from the very beginning, brought about through the massive, the miraculous, and the seemingly minute interventions of God. We don't need to go anywhere else. We simply need this day and every day to trust in him, to dwell in him, to find ourselves in him. Lord God, be with us today, we pray. Whether there are things which we think are silly and small for your care and your concern, whether we, there are things that we think are massive and mighty and overwhelming to you, Lord, help us to entrust ourselves to the God who is over and above it all, who is involved in it all, the God who decided, the God who has acted to bring us back into relationship with him. We thank you for Ruth. We thank you for Boaz. We thank you for Obed. We thank you for Jesse. We thank you for David all the way down to Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for that child that was born, our King, our Redeemer, our Saviour. Help us to find ourselves in him and to remain. Be with us, we pray, by your spirit.